I want you to think with me today. Um, if you could know what's going to happen in your future, how would that change your present? Some things are uh, wild and, and crazy. It's hard to believe that, that about 25 years ago, my friends and I kidnapped our good friend Matt, put him in the trunk, drove him to the scavenger hunt uh, where we had set up for him on Capitol Hill in Seattle on the eve of his wedding, right? You gotta love a bachelor party, good stuff. And Matt experienced uncertainty for sure, discomfort, yes, uh, but he knew that we had the best of intentions. In retrospect, a blindfold or one of those bags over the head probably would have been just as effective and maybe even safer. Uh, but for better or worse, he trusted his friends and that, that colored his present circumstances in the trunk of a car. It would all turn out okay. Um, but, you know, we go through uncertainty all the time. And, but if you could know your future, I ask this again, if you could know what's going to happen in the future, how would that change your present? If you knew the trouble that you were going through would end up in safety and security, or if you knew that the safety and security you were experiencing would turn to trouble, how would that change your present actions? I'm sure you have a mixture of all of that uh, this very day. Uncertainty can be terrifying and paralyzing, even if things are going well, right? But, but certainty can be stabilizing even when things are going poorly, because, well, we know what we're in for now, right? And the world is, is full of, of terrifying uncertainty. We've heard or seen reports of street-to-street -street fighting in, in Iraq, you know, with the terrorism, or being left on the runway. Sorry, this might scandalize. It's difficult. Being left on the runway when the last plane leaves Afghanistan. Uh, I've been looking into Nigeria, just the news, and the Fulani and Hausa tribes have have been kidnapping and murdering each other, even as we speak, in northern Nigeria. The overlooked Fulani cattle herding people are trying to get the attention of the government, and they oppose the Hausa tribe, but they used to get along with just fine. And now their warlords are kidnapping schools full of girls in the style of Boko Haram, and playing the bandit, and they're back and forth causing terror through a region, displacing a million people. And that's happening right now. People living in constant fear and uncertainty. Another difficult story, I think of Deborah Yakuba, who's a 21-year-old Christian student in a college in northern Nigeria. Back in May of this year, she was attacked by a Muslim mob who killed her because, because of a group chat in her college class where she mentioned that Jesus was the reason she got such a good grade. And some Muslim boys didn't like that. She pushed back and left a, a voice note on her class discussion board that some took as dangerous language against their prophet. And others say it's, it wasn't a big deal. Deborah was stoned by a mob burned under a pile of tires. May 12, 2022. Darkness, terror, uncertainty and right that you know this and as, as difficult as that was for me to think about and say and for you to listen to we know that that's just a sample so take a breath with me say a prayer for them lord have mercy lord have mercy
But if you knew what was going to happen just five or ten years in the future, what would you change about today? If you knew these things were going to happen, would you run from them? I'm kind of glad I don't know the details about my future, but like you, I, I sure am curious. <laughs> sure I'm curious. Well, let's get more to the point. What if you knew that persecution was to be expected? It was coming. It was unavoidable. How would that change your preparation, your resolve, your attitude, your prayers, your determination? Would you be paralyzed? Or would you take a deep breath, stand up straight, and march forward into a certain but painful future? Because, Christian, here's something that is certain. Number one, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus the Messiah is Lord. The second thing we know is that someday every being in heaven and on earth, under the earth, will bow the knee and confess this truth, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And third, we know that in the meantime, there will be opposition to that proclamation. Right? For Paul, this timeline for opposition was moved up to the present. We've been looking at this. Paul has just left the Ephesian elders at the shore saying, I'm bound and determined to make it to Jerusalem. And this word bound or constrained will be used in other ways as well. This is what he said. Acts 20, 22 through 24. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained or bound by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Weighed in the balance, all, all that mattered to Paul was obedience to his calling to proclaim Jesus as Lord. And curiously, Paul knows that Jerusalem is not the last stop on his journey. He has in his mind that he's convinced that he will get to proclaim Jesus as Lord to Caesar, who claimed to be the Son of God and Lord of all. In a letter written uh, earlier on this trip to the churches in Rome, he also mentions he wants to go further than Rome to Spain. Right? For Paul, that is the end of the earth. That would accomplish the mission to the Gentiles that he's been called to. That would complete his role. And, and you know this maybe, that the story of Acts uh, is about taking the gospel to all the nations. It's going to start in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And this is a deep calling for Paul. And, and Luke has been working hard to describe it. Let's review why Spain might be considered the ends of the earth and maybe the end of Paul's mission and the reappearing of Christ. Now, I've asked you to consider various times in our journey through Acts about the curious names of all the nations that keep popping up in the book. Where does that go? Why do they mention that? What's this name about? These names come from a list deep in the Hebrew tradition, in the Hebrew scriptures. 
Genesis chapter 10 lists 70 nations that all went astray at the Genesis 11 Tower of Babylon event, right? So Genesis 10, Genesis 11. Yahweh scattered the people, confused their language. In Deuteronomy 32, 7 through 9, Moses is teaching Israel a song that Yahweh gave him. And, and one of the lines goes like this, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, or your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, he divided mankind. He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. Yahweh has set divine beings called sons of God to keep an eye on these nations while he starts a rescue plan. Their inheritance is these nations, but God's, Yahweh's inheritance is going to be Jacob or Israel, starting in Genesis chapter 12, so 10, 11, 12, with Abraham. Yahweh will bless Abraham, and through him all families on the earth would be blessed. So through Jesus the Messiah, the son of Abraham, Yahweh has accomplished that. And now the message is going out to all of those nations. Those divine beings had rebelled and corrupted the nations. And now each one of these 70 nations has been mentioned by Luke and has been, has been reached with the gospel, except for one, which is Tarshish or Spain. In Paul's mind, if he can make it to Spain, he will have announced the blessing of Messiah Jesus to all the nations. At that point, mission accomplished. Surely, he must be thinking that this will result in Christ's reappearing and the kingdom fully coming with the new creation, that longing for Christians. 2,000 years later, of course, we know that what Paul didn't know, that there are a few more than 70 nations. That may have been poetry, language for, for how many nations are in the world. We also know that Jesus is, is also bound and determined to bless all nations from Nigeria to Norway, from Tonga to Trinidad. He's been patiently sending out his workers into the harvest to all the nations out of his love and mercy. And today we have to ask the question, are we partnering in that? Are you partnering in that global and local mission? The Apostle Paul understands that he will suffer. Jesus explained this to him early on when he met him. You will suffer. He, he knows he's going to suffer to bring this message to the nations. And Paul will not be deterred, even by his brothers and sisters who beg him to avoid persecution. We'll see this. They, they may break his heart, but not his resolve. Let's read the first part of our passage for today. Acts chapter 21, verse 1 through 9. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. Okay, he's, remember, he's been in a hurry to get out of Ephesus and to get moving on. But this, 
this over water voyage, not just hopping the shore, has left him apparently some time to hang out with the church for seven days, a church he hadn't known entire. And through the Spirit, they, the church, were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they, with all the wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. Now, what a scene. The Spirit is telling us that you're going to receive suffering. Don't go, don't go. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And on the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven. And we stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Let's just pause there. It seems that the Spirit has been telling the disciples, especially the prophets, that Paul is going to suffer. There will be trouble in Jerusalem. So does this mean, Paul knowing that future, hearing from the Spirit, hearing from the community, does that, that Paul should avoid going? That's a big question. It's possible that you, like, like me, have had experiences with other Christians who, let's say, quote-unquote, have a word for you from God. Sometimes this is a comforting word. And other times, like in this case, a, a very discomforting one. I don't think... I need to hear that future, right? A friend of mine was told not to worry because his dad would make it out of the coma and would surely live on. I remember talking to him during this. and he, I'll say he did not take great comfort in this word. And after his father died, it was even more simple to discern that this was not a, what we'd call an accurate prophecy. So should we speak? Should we, should we listen to the words of, of prophets? Well, God does give us instruction how to do that. These are difficult to discern by ourselves. But these kinds of prophecy of the New Testament seem to be subject to the discernment of the group filtered through the established word of God in the Bible. So it is still a fair question to pose to the church. Hey, church, I'm, I'm experiencing this. Family, I've been, I've been praying, uh, and, and God seems to be calling me to do this or to do that. Does that seem reasonable to you? Well, let's pray about that and see what the Spirit says to us. I think there's still a good role for, for having a word, but it needs to be filtered in community with interpretation, as it were. And before we plunge into the next section, can we just notice that Philip's daughters are prophets? <laughs> I think it's really cool. The prophet Joel and has been, been predicting, and then Peter picks this up in Acts chapter 2, that God would pour out his spirit on his sons and daughters. It's a highly important role in, in the early church. Paul himself mentions that prophets are second only to apostles in God's gift to the church for establishing it and getting it moving. In the gospel and in Acts, we see Luke highlight many different female prophets. From Anna in, in the gospel of Luke and, and Mary to, to here with Philip's daughters and others. It's a good reminder for those of us that wonder what God thinks about women using their gifts in the context of the church. Because Paul even gave instruction for women when they prophesy in church. Because it was assumed that if you're gifted, this is your role. But just this is how 
to do it. So that should challenge us a little bit. And we can add to the story the mention of Junia, who along with her husband Andronicus had the role of apostles as well in, in Rome. This has been discussed and debated, of course, but I think the consensus is that, that no, they weren't among the 12 apostles. Those were in Jerusalem. Um, and, and neither was Paul, right? But he says in Romans 16, 7, Andronicus and Junia, Junia were in the Messiah even before he was. They were witnesses to the resurrection, faithful in their proclamation of Jesus in the churches. Here's another familiar prophet uh, from the book of Acts, um, Agabus, right? Acts 21, 10 through 14. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from, from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt, or like a sash, uh, and bound his own feet and hands with it and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the people that urged him there, we urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. That's a beautiful statement. The, the journey to Jerusalem is being portrayed in these ominous tones, matching the Jesus journey as well. You remember he set his face toward Jerusalem, Jesus did. And they said, don't go. And he said, I must go. Ben Witherington says, the parallels with Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem are notable and considerable. He says, one, the final journey in each case involves or is precipitated by a Jewish plot. And number two, there's a handing over to or a falling into the hands of the Gentiles in Jerusalem. Number three, a triple prediction of the coming suffering. Paul's been hearing it in, in uh, Ephesus, and he's been hearing it in Tyre, and he's been hearing it in Caesarea. There's a, there's a triple prediction of the coming of suffering. And number four, there's an end uh, of resignation. Like, wow, okay, God's will must be done in both cases. Right? And I would add a fifth comparison. Both Jesus and Paul were bringing a gift to Jerusalem at great cost. Remember, Paul had with him a sampling of the first fruits from the Gentile church, the brothers, as well as a harvest of finances to bring to the poor saints in Jerusalem. And Agabus, like a few of the prophets in the Old Testament, acts out this prophecy. There's a rich tradition of this happening in the scriptures. Perhaps you know of it. There's some really strange stuff. Uh, here are some of the prophetic sign acts that stand out to me. Isaiah goes naked for three years to represent the people of Cush and Egypt being led away naked as captives by the Assyrians. Jeremiah buys, wears, and buries a waist sash to illustrate the people's initial closeness to God and their subsequent deterioration. Ezekiel prepares a bag, digs a hole in the wall of his house, places the bag on his shoulder, and exits through the hole with his eyes covered and departs from the city to represent the people of Jerusalem going off in exile. The, the Probably the more famous one, Hosea 
is commanded to marry a prostitute who is unfaithful to him over and over as Israel is to Yahweh. These prophetic sign acts just state the case, don't they? Curiously, this New Testament prophet, Agabus, does not tell Paul that he's forbidden to go to Jerusalem, but that he indeed would not be a free man. He's not forbidden, but he's not going to be free. So let's take stock of where we are in this passage so far. And, and I want us to just imagine being Paul's traveling companions. We have a, a triple warning about the suffering up ahead. We have a pleading church breaking his heart, but not his resolve. We have Paul bound and determined to accomplish his mission, to bring the gift to the saints in Jerusalem and to minister to them. He wants to unite the church, Jew and Gentile. And Dean Penter explains that there's something else going on beneath the surface of the text. I want to read this to you. He says, The Holy Spirit spoke to fellow believers about Paul's future circumstances. And the response on their part was deep concern. In fact, many of them had misgivings about Paul's course to continue to Jerusalem. And while we might interpret these misgivings and Paul's decision to be at cross purposes, there's something else that the knowledge given by the Spirit afforded them. It offered them an invitation for connection and participation in Paul's life and mission. It offered them an invitation for connection and participation in Paul's life and mission. These communities from Philippi to Jerusalem knew what was going to happen to Paul. For many of them, this may have been the last physical contact they would have with Paul. As hard as it was, this knowledge allowed them to grieve with him and to pray for him. As they parted, they would continue to be connected to him through their prayer. And their prayers would not only be for the welfare of their beloved apostle and friend, but they could pray for the success of his gospel witness before rulers and kings, including Caesar himself. So their knowledge of his suffering, their understanding of the future, invites an intimate connection with the suffering apostle. This church family is being invited to partner with the gospel in a new way to pray for boldness and for courage, that the suffering would accomplish the purposes of God to the glory of God. And this is the kind of partnership that the persecuted church in the year 2022 is hoping for from us and the kind of hope that they extend to one another, the care and the concern, the compassion. For, for those of us that don't suffer for speaking out, and either that's because we don't speak out, wow, um, or because those around us are tolerant of our message, whichever. Those of us who don't suffer for speaking out can partner with those who suffer for the gospel, the proclamation. Now, I want to suggest a resource, persecution.com. You're not signing up for persecution, but you will hear about the church suffering. So persecution.com for getting started in your partnership in the suffering saints who are bound and determined to proclaim the news about Jesus' victory over sin and death. In fact, Luke's story 
the way he's been telling it, he's focused on Paul recently, we know, but, but it's not really about Paul. It's about the proclamation. Paul would say, this isn't about me. This is about the proclamation that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. May God's will be done. May his kingdom come, his will, to his glory. The gospel, we could just kind of dial this in, is the announcement summed up in, you could say, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus of Nazareth, Christ, Israel's Messiah, the son of David, is Lord, risen, conquering, ruling. Jesus, the Christ, is Lord. I love the risen, conquering, ruling part. I'm sure you do too. And I, I know that, that Paul's friends wanted to spare him the suffering. And we often pray for um, you know, to, to avoid the suffering, or to eliminate the suffering. His brothers in the church were aware that the Spirit is saying loud and clear, suffering awaits you. Paul seems to say, I know that. I'm prepared for that. This is actually my calling. How can we sit with that? I'm a fan of International Justice Mission. They bust down doors and rescue child slaves and bring prosecution to the criminals. I've actually dreamed of a second life in ministry after all the training I've done, quote unquote, uh, reading books, uh, watching movies and television. I've trained under some of the greats, uh, Jack Bauer, Jack Reacher, uh, Jack Ryan, uh, a little bit with Jack Shepard and Jack Sparrow. Um, <laughs> I've done a lot of visualizing, a lot of training with, with a lot of the Jacks, honestly. <laughs> and I think about this, busting out pastors and preachers who are prisoners for Christ, you know? SEAL Team 6, go in and get them. I think about getting them out of the fire and into safety. But, but here, here, listen, I'm haunted by this. Maybe you've heard this. The response from the persecuted church, they, they seem to say, oh, it's okay to suffer for Jesus. I find great intimacy and fellowship and sharing in his sufferings. It's, this, is, this is part of God's work in his kingdom. God, God's furthering his kingdom through my imprisonment. They certainly don't wish for suffering, but they live in this thy will be done sovereignty of God mode. They ask for boldness and open doors. Not necessarily to escape, though if the doors were open, they would walk out. But, but open doors to share the proclamation that Jesus, the Christ, is Lord. Many have suffered, and they saw it coming, and they were bound and determined to maintain the proclamation. Let me leave you with Jesus' words, John 15, 14 through 25. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, because the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I've commanded you, so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you. 
that would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. So, if you knew the future, if you knew that you would suffer for Jesus, would you still be bound and determined to proclaim him? Now, haters going to hate, but let's give them no cause except for the gospel, for hating us. The proclamation will cause enough stir, no needless offense, but the stumbling block that is the cross. We preach Christ and Christ crucified, and we leave the results to God.